0: West Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference.
1: Well, welcome. Today we continue our series, Relationship Above Differences, and uh, we deal with a really highly emotional, divisive issue, homosexuality and gay marriage. And for all of us, I would like to submit that this is not an abstract, not a philosophical issue. It is a very personal one. I don't know about you, but I have uh, my next older brother who is uh, gay. And I would suspect that every single one of us here have a family member, have a close friend, have a close colleague at work, a neighbor who is gay. And along with that and those relationships for many of us has come difficulty, struggle, pain, all sorts of things I've also had the privilege over the years of having some very close friendships with many other gay people other than my brother, uh, both personal and professional relationships, and had the privilege of hearing their personal stories in detail. And honestly, I think as a starting place for our discussion today, I think we need to deal with and recognize the pain, first of all, that gay people have experienced in their community, in their work environments, and from the church there's been a tremendous amount of pain that gay people have experienced in their lifestyle. And I, if, you, if, you're, if you've never had the privilege of hearing that level of pain and personal stories from people, I, I want to recommend a YouTube video uh, called It Takes Courage, Columbus. It's done by the Columbus Division of Police, and it's part of the it's Get, it's Get Better, It Gets Better Project by CCAD. You can find it online. And it is really, really well done. As far as sharing the very real reality of someone living a gay lifestyle and the pain they experience. If we don't understand that, we miss a big piece of what we need to deal with. I also want to acknowledge today a couple of truths out of that video that match the stories of my gay friends. And that one of the realities is that I have never met a single person who started off in life saying, I want to be gay. Because even with today's increasing acceptance in our culture of it, there is still way too much relational, family, and workplace pain and discrimination that goes on for anybody to ever have gone into life intending to say, I want to be gay. And second, the reality that I've experienced from most of my gay friends who I've heard their story is that their experience with church has been terrible. It doesn't in any way match The Jesus that I see in the Gospels and his behavior towards people who are in sin or who are lost, and it certainly doesn't come across as good news to them. David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyon, in their book Unchristian, did massive surveys among people who are unchurched, and among the age population of 16 to 29, 91% of the people in that age range say that the church is anti-homosexual. And they not only say that, but they go further in saying that Christians show excessive anger and disgust and are generally unloving attitudes towards gay people. Most 16- to 29-year-olds believe that Christianity has nothing of value to say to the issue based upon the surveys. And today, I want to begin to help change that. In our brief time together, we're going to dance through some emotional and theological minefields for all of us, and uh, I'm going to ask for grace. Grace that you'll stay with me, that you won't get sidetracked on one point where, you, where it taps into your emotion or disagreement, but you'll stay with me so we get the big picture, because I think the big picture is really where I want us to land today. And if we agree on nothing else today, I think we can agree on this. I think that we would love to see a world where there is less harshness and more kindness. And I would love to see a world where I think all of us can say, regardless of our opinion, we want our hearts to be open to God. So would you join me in prayer towards that end? Lord, I ask that You would come to us right now and that You would, by Your Spirit, bring to mind the feelings, the thoughts that we need to be thinking about today and that You would guard our hearts, Lord, because this is such a difficult issue. It's easy, it's really easy to close ourselves off. And so, Lord, I pray that You'd help us stay open to You and trust Your goodness regardless of what we think about this issue, that we would trust Your goodness today. And the Lord, we would learn to be different. We would learn to be kind towards one another and kind towards those even when we disagree. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's how we're going to look at it today. We're going to look at the biblical texts that are at the center of the debate. We're going to isolate it to the three primary ones. And then we're going to spend some time on how the Bible would instruct us and how our thinking of who Jesus is would instruct us on having kind relationships above differences. And we're going to have communion at the end. There are three key passages at the center of this debate. Leviticus 18, Romans 1, and 1 Corinthians 6. And let's just dive in and look at those. Leviticus 18, it says this. It says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Strong word, huh? That's a really tough, strong word. We're going to come back to those strong words in a couple of these texts a little bit later. But when the cr- traditional Christian theologians look at this, we're going to try to look at both the traditional Christian theologians' views and the pro-gay theologians' views. The traditional Christian theologians look at this, and they see it's clearly stating that homosexuality is sin. The pro-gay theologians look at this, and they go, well, okay, Leviticus is actually primarily a book about the ceremonial holiness law, and it's not, and we all know that the ceremonial law is not enduring law, and therefore this doesn't apply to us today. And among theologians of all stripes and brands, that argument that ceremonial law is not an enduring law for all time is an agreed upon point of fact. Uh, the ceremonial law is things like, includes things like the Jewish temple practices. So it includes things like burning how they burned the incense and why they burned the incense and how they sacrificed the animals. And the Bible teaches that Jesus' sacrifice is perfect and therefore annuls the need for any of that to continue. So ceremonial law in that instance doesn't apply to today. Ceremonial law also includes things in the Old Testament that are referred to by many as the cleanliness laws. So there's, those are all the laws around blood, that if you touch blood or a woman in her period is unclean for a certain amount of time, or that if you touch a dead body, you're unclean for a certain amount of time, or um, things like um, circumcision or the food laws, the laws around what food you can and can't eat. And actually, just as a side note, with the advances in medicine and science that we have today, we can look back on those cleanliness laws, and we realize that they were a huge gift by God to them back then Because they didn't understand a lot about diseases, and these laws actually protected them in many respects from the spread of disease. The pushback on the pro gay theological view of this uh, being a ceremonial law and therefore not enduring law, enduring moral law, is that it becomes problematic to look at this. So, for example, this verse, verse 22, is sandwiched in the middle of a non stop discussion about sexual, sinful, sexual relations, sex with children, sex with animals, sex with mother or aunt or sister, or having sex with other people's spouses, or offering your children as human sacrifices. That's all part of this nonstop discussion. So to argue that this passage about homosexuality is ceremonial and not enduring has to also, if you're going to be have integrity to the argument and what the text is actually saying, has to argue that all the rest of those practices are also okay and not banned. And so that becomes, obviously, for all of us, problematic. When we flip over to the New Testament, Romans 1 is at the center of the debate. And we're going to start reading that passage back at the section we looked at last week and then extend beyond that. Verse 18, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now the traditional Christian theologians would look at this and say God clearly is saying He reveals who He is and what is right and wrong in the way we are created, that sin blinds us to how God really created us and who God is, and He, in that blindness, sometimes gives us over to degrading passions, in this instance, illustrated by sin of involvement in homosexuality. So that seems kind of clear from their perspective. The pro-gay theologians look at this and they say, well, this wording that's used here really doesn't refer to all homosexual behavior. It refers to homosexual gay practices that are well documented in the Roman Empire as being prevalent all around that are abusive and ritual. The pushback, and we'll deal with this just a little bit more because the argument in the next text is even stronger on this point. The pushback is that there is no conclusive linguistic or even in the context of the passage, no contextual evidence that Paul is trying to make that narrow of a definition on this issue. And therefore, making it that narrow becomes arbitrary. So let's look at the next passage, 1 Corinthians 6 in this This whole uh, narrowing of the definition argument becomes more clear here. Beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate by perversion, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, really strong wording. Such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Again, some really strong, difficult wording to deal with. We'll deal with that in just a second uh, as we look at it further. But the pro gay theologians look at this, and this is where they more strongly assert their argument that the terminology used here is only towards a practice of men having sex with boys and sex slaves who were boys in the Roman Empire. And they would therefore say that this does not uh, um, extend to consensual, monogamous relationship among consenting adults. Now, their linguistic argument is built primarily on the fact that in this passage, it uses a noun to talk about homosexuality, whereas in Leviticus and some other places it uses a verb. So uh, I didn't really do really well in grammar, so I'm going to explain that really clearly in just a second. But they say because of it's a noun that it is referring only to a person, place, or thing, a certain segment of men having sex with boys that was practiced in the Roman culture. So let's take this out of that terminology, and let's just examine this from a grammatical standpoint. Let's just say, in other terms, that the Bible were maybe to say somewhere that it is unlawful to lay bricks. It doesn't say that, right? But let's just say the Bible were to say it is unlawful to lay bricks. That's a verb usage. Then it also said in another place, "The bricklayers are lawbreakers." That's a noun usage. Can we make an argument that they are using, that they are saying two different things, exclusive of each other, based upon this argument? Because that's what the argument of the pro-gay theologians are saying. Because it's a noun usage in one, it is an exclusive statement not representing the same as the other one. And again, the pushback from the traditional Christian theologians on this is that it lacks historical evidence for this narrow definition. Uh, And we could go into that a long time, but we don't have time for that. And that—that that is actually acknowledged typically on both sides of the fence that there is not much historical evidence for that narrow of a definition. So therefore, traditional Christian theologians would say, well, that's like if 200 years from now people looked back on our day and they said the term playing politics only referred to professional politicians. Now, we all know that to be absurd, Right. And that's their statement and argument that this whole argument of pro-gay theology is not reasonable. So there's another argument that the pro-gay theologians put forward, and it's, it's this cultural argument that, uh, that, that being gay or homosexuality is discriminated against just the same as the church discriminated for years against slaves and women. And they refer back to a passage in Galatians 3. So if you're here a number of weeks ago, we actually talked about this whole issue of the women. And we talked about in that passage about the the cultural argument. And that a cultural argument is only biblically valid if in the text of Scripture there is evidence that behavior that was against what was forbidden over here was blessed by God elsewhere. So there's a conflict there. Or that the wording of the text itself gives indication that this command is cultural for the sake of prioritizing the gospel. And the reality is, in regard to the gay issue, there is no corroborating evidence anywhere in the Bible that would put it on the same plane as the women's issue as we discussed weeks ago. It's simply absent. There's nothing. So... The struggle with the cultural issue for those who are traditional Christian theologians is that the opinion that it's culture is simply an arbitrary opinion imposed on the text and it's not evident there evidenced in it. Finally, there's a theological opinion among pro-gay theologians that basically says, I've always been this way. We've always heard that, right? And many people have stated that. I've always been this way. God made me this way. And the argument is the argument of genetics or otherwise, that I am created by God this way. So if that's true that I'm created by God this way, then doesn't that prove that God created gay people and therefore it's morally acceptable? And it goes back to the ultimate fairness issue, right? If all of this is true that I just said, then the ultimate fairness is that it would be God who created, right? But the Bible, when you actually look at the creation account, it gives no indication of gay being a created thing. It only talks about heterosexuality. It only talks about marriage between one man, one woman. And as we've said before, An argument from silence is not the strongest argument, but the traditional Christian theologians say, well, it's not an argument from silence because the rest of the Bible says plenty about it that would verify that we should interpret it this way in the creation account. But let me ask you this question. What do we already know from the Bible about genetics and sin? It actually says quite a lot about it. When we look at the creation account, we understand from the creation and the fall that sin brought death into a perfect paradise, right? What has death resulted in? Death has resulted in what? We know it's resulted in corruption of relationships. We know that it's resulted in disease, right? How many of you know somebody who's been genetically predisposed to heart disease or cancer in their life, or some other disease. How many of you know somebody who is genetically predisposed to depression or to bipolar or to schizophrenia? For that matter, uh, if you've had multiple children, like I have, from a very early age, from practically birth on, you see the personality differences. And whether you can prove that the, what gene dictates that and whether it's genetic, we would all probably agree that personality is genetic. And created from the very beginning, and yet I can show you over and over again from personality studies that certain personalities, certain personalities, are more prone to lying or outbursts of anger in certain types of situations than others. Right? We would all consent that that's true. Could it be that there is a genetic difference that predisposes people to being gay, not of God's creation? but of the effects of sin since the Bible teaches that sin has caused genetic corruption, death, that leaves us struggling with difficult temptations, sometimes for a lifetime. Honestly, with my closest brother becoming gay and the difficulty in the, that has caused in our relationship, Emotionally, everything from a relational standpoint, I so wish that I could support a theology that says a gay lifestyle is not sin. But I believe God is big enough to communicate to us reliably through Scripture what is truth and where He wants us to go. And I, just as much as I wish I could get there, because it would solve so many pain points in my life and in your life. I just can't get there theologically without splitting hairs and reinterpreting words that are not evident from the culture of the day and reinterpreting the culture. So let's get on to what I think is maybe even the more important thing. Let's deal with what it means, what this means for us relationally. And to do that, I want you to turn your attention to the screen again, please. I hope we can be a church like that someday. One of the things I love in that in that clip is Sam Adams, the, the mayor of Portland, saying, that is not lost on me. See, the reality of even the disagreement over whether this is sin or not is a very much a part of their relationship, and yet they have a very winsome, close friendship. In fact, much closer than what's even portrayed in this particular video. And frankly, I think the relationship is very much like the relationship Jesus had with people all the time. And my core proposal is today for all of us is, why can't we be the same? Why can't we be people who reach across the differences, even the differences of what people define as sin and and what sin is and what sin is not, and build these winsome, beautiful, kind, strong gospel relationships? And I would submit to you that we haven't been able to because of what we've been talking about the last few weeks. We live our life in bounded set box thinking. So I want to give a first application to our relationships. And it's going to be centered around this question, how do we as a church need to change? I think one of the most grievous errors that I've been a part of in the past and the church has been a part of and continues to be a part of that has imposed much heartache and posed, resulted in gay people misunderstanding both Jesus and the gospel is simply found in this statement. We have talked about the fact that if you struggle with same-sex attraction and you decide to follow Jesus, you will be completely healed of those feelings. So, as I've sat with my, Christian, my my gay friends and they've related to me through fearful, pain-filled, ridden tears and conversations. They've talked about how they dealt with the same-sex attraction in a deafening, condemning silence all alone. You see, I listened to men who would talk to me and tell me their story and say that they started dealing with same-sex attraction feelings when they were 8, 10, 12, 14 years old. And because they lived in a culture that made fun of it or they lived in a family that was Christian that didn't believe in it or it doesn't even have to be Christian to not believe in it, they lived in a family that didn't believe in it, they feared talking about it, so they never did. And why would they? Why would they when we as a church so often make shaming, sarcasm jokes like God made Adam and Eve but didn't make Adam and Steve? And there's a bite to that. Why would they open up when we make uh, and have promoted as a church and as a people ignorance, ignorant stereotypes? That people who are gay, we, we say people who are gay are more likely to be sexual predators, and that's simply not true. We say that people who are gay are more likely to carry STDs, and that's simply not true. And we as men are squeamish all too often about hugging a gay man or knowing that a gay man is sharing the bathroom with us, and we have all sorts of things like that. Or like what happened with a very close friend of ours. A close friend of ours had their adult son come to them about a year, two years ago, maybe three, I, I lose track of time. And they came to them and said, the son came and said, Mom and Dad, I no longer believe in Jesus. In fact, I don't believe there is a God. And they went and talked to a couple of their church friends to ask them to pray for their son, and the church friend's response was, at least they're not gay. Really? Really? Why would somebody open up? We as a church have so much to repent of. We as a church have treated gays in horrible ways. And we've not stood up to others when they've been mistreated. You see, my gay friends and I, when we would talk, they would they would talk to me about how, how, about how they prayed for years and pleaded with God for freedom from those feelings of same-sex attraction. And it wouldn't happen. And they'd keep pleading and they'd keep praying. And all this time, the guilt would grow and grow and grow. And in spite of their effort to do everything right, to act right, it would continue to grow. And then sometime, usually late teens, early twenties, they came to this natural conclusion that God must hate me because he's, or he's written me off because he hasn't helped me change. So since I'm clearly not good enough for God, they conclude the heck with it and they just go straight, full-on head into the gay lifestyle. See, unless we get over our weird feelings and our horrible stereotypes of gays, unless we acknowledge that some of them do indeed find freedom and healing from those struggles and have little struggle on an ongoing basis and that while others never really ever get over that struggle and they may struggle for a lifetime, unless we acknowledge those things, we will continue to drive gay people who are now trying to follow Jesus or who want to follow Jesus away from Him into aloneness and shame. And we won't be the lights who reflect the light of, uh, light of love to them. Instead, we'll force them into these boxes and we'll be Pharisees to them, making them die a slow death. You see, we must be a people and build relationships with people where it is safe for people to talk about same-sex attraction. And it can't stop there. In fact, it can't even start there, probably, for most of us. We have to be a people who it's safe for all of us, regardless of what area of sin we carry in our life on a regular basis, for us to talk about our own sin with one another openly. Otherwise, we continue to be box people. The second application to relationship comes down to how do we view God. See, when we're in the box... World of the way we think about faith and religion, these words abomination and degrading and will not inherit the kingdom of God are devastating to us. They are the ultimate box thinking of I am out, I'm not in, I'm rejected, I'm not good enough, and I'm going to hell when we start thinking about the gospel and our Christian faith through centered set thinking eyes, through the eyes that we follow Jesus, that we are forgiven by him of everything, that we are justified completely and forever if we will orient our lives towards him and trust him to bring definition to us. And we remember this illustration we talked about the last few weeks where we talked about these panes of glass. And how God creates us at the beginning of our life, at at creation, He created us clear, perfect, pure, no defect, no scar. We can see everything perfectly. And that sin comes in and creates cracks and scars and mars on us and prevents us from being able to see through clearly and see really who we are or see who God says we are. And then we talked about last week how this illustration is really too simple because the reality is that we're actually made up of many pains of aspects of our lives. And maybe we have this aspect of our life that's money. Maybe we have this aspect of our life that is our sexual identity. Maybe we have this many aspects of our lives that make up our self-worth. And to take this discussion out of just the gay discussion for a minute... Can we just acknowledge for a second that every single one of us have at least one pain of our life greatly damaged to the point that the words of Romans 1 are true that we are blinded to truth and the reality of who we are and who God is? Maybe, maybe it is our sexuality. Maybe it is a a fear of conflict and the painful decisions that come because we fear conflict. Maybe it has something to do with many of the areas of your sense of self-worth and your confidence and the fact that what you believe about yourself is so distorted from God and you react out of that and cause pain. Maybe that area of your life is some sort of addiction that brings pain to you and pain to others, but all of us have a pain of our lives in which we are blind. And can't see without God's help. So trying to follow Jesus in that place of light, it becomes very difficult because when all of a sudden we come to that place where that pain is exposed, what's our normal reaction when sin is exposed in our life? Yeah, it's to hide. Isn't it to jump back in the box of in and out? Jump back in the box of good enough and not? And so instead of continuing to rest and look at Jesus' goodness to us, we turn to the side and we start to examine saying, how can I get rid of this? How can I fix myself good enough so that I can be accepted again? Right? Isn't that our normal response? And we look at ourselves in darkness instead of looking at ourselves through the light and the love of God. In fact, if it gets bad enough and we continue to sin over, over and over enough for long enough, we come to the same conclusion that gay people come to the conclusion in the 20s sometimes, that God has condemned us, God is not favorable to us in that area, and because we can't handle the pain, we turn our back completely on the light so that this is in darkness because we can't stand looking at it. How many of you uh, love going out with your little brothers or sisters or your kids when they're really small and playing with the shadows right don't kids love playing with their shadows because their shadows they're such they're so small but their shadows are so big but you see when we turn and respond to god in this way all we do is we create monster shadows for us and that's all we can see and we become hopeless we become burdened we become fraught with anxiety and guilt If there's nothing else that any of us can take away regardless of this issue or agreement or disagreement on it today, I hope that we can take away from this discussion the idea that we need to stop turning inward. We need to stop turning on ourselves and trying to fix ourselves when sin is exposed. We need to learn to stay open and honest and looking at God in that process because He loves us Because He forgives us. What if abomination isn't out of a heart of a harsh attitude? What if that's not what it means? What if it's not coming from the idea of condemnation, but a compassionate comment on the level of our brokenness? What if it's like a tornado having gone through a neighborhood and one house not being hardly touched at all, just this minor damage while the next mansion right next to it has been totally obliterated and is in a scar, just a hollow scar of what it used to be? What if it is primarily a compassionate comment on the level of damage, of blindness, in the same heart that Jesus says, a bruised reed I will not break? that kind of compassion. Our third application to relationship today is this. How does this change a unique demand that the gay community makes on all of us that is really not actually unique at all? So centered-set thinking in the gospel actually helps us get to this. It challenges not only uh, all of us on this same idea. So, for instance, when my brother in 2001 came out of the closet since then, we've had a very difficult time finding common ground to talk about things and even have much of a relationship because he consistently draws through his word, explicit words, and I'll actually quote some of them in a moment, this line in the sand through these repeated statements that I don't know how to navigate, and it makes it hard for any of us to navigate. He makes these repeated statements that if you don't accept my identity as gay... If you don't accept the accompanying behaviors of that, then you cannot love me at all. How do you deal with that? See, what he's asking us is, uh, uh, what, what, what the gospel is not first and foremost asking and demanding that you, if you are a gay person, absolutely believe that it is sin and wrong before you can follow Jesus. What it is asking you uh, as a gay person is the same thing it asks every single human being on the face of the planet, to admit that you are blinded by sin, that you need Jesus in His light. And to surrender our entire identity to Jesus, our Creator, and say no matter what the cost, I will let you lead me and define me wherever that takes me. You see, that ask of asking a gay person to give, that, give up that identity is no different than what God asks each and every one of us, right? So what do you say to a person then if it takes them years to come to that same conclusion? Let's, let's just assume that, that my interpretation of the Bible, that it's sin, is correct. What does, it, what does it mean if someone takes years following Jesus before they come to that same conclusion? Well, we know they're already forgiven, right? Right? And we know that forgiveness in Christ is not a license to sin. It is a state of freedom that we're in. A state of freedom that allows us to stay turning towards God, to be accepted by Him, to have full access to Him, to have peace without condemnation, to have peace without the pressure of, what if I don't understand enough fast enough and change enough? Right? We all deal with that pressure. In fact, the reality is God may not even work first on a person's sexual orientation as he starts to bring healing in someone's life. Another objection that I hear related to this is, if I'm going to struggle with this my entire life, then isn't that an indication God did really make me this way? And therefore, isn't it unfair of you to ask non-gay people to give that up? Well, first of all, gay is not unique as far as lifelong struggles, is it? I mean, if you're not convinced, what about pornography? We have drives and needs and core longings that drive people to pornography as a lifelong struggle. We have people who struggle with anger over the course of an entire lifetime. Oh, but those are clearly sinful, those are abusive. I'm in a loving, beautiful, monogamous relationship. But still, that isn't unique to what God asks of us either. Why is workaholism a lifelong struggle for many people who only find partial healing, if any healing at all? Workaholism provides lots of good. A lot of stuff is produced that's very good. And there's, frankly, a lot of marriages and families that have done quite fine, not as good as they could, but quite fine in a relationship where that's present. But it can still be a sin. It can still be driven by identity issues that are not in line with who God wants you to be, who God created you to be, and in line with how He wants you to see Him. And we could go on with lists of things driven by core longings that we all have by things that that, that are sin unless they're directed or they're controlled or they're shaped or they're reframed. And the reality is, all of us, whether it's sexual orientation or a view of power or a view of money or sex or marriage or parenting or friendship or conflict, and we could keep on going and eventually I'd get to list a pain that would touch everybody's life in this place, all of us are scarred and blinded to who God has really made us to be in some area and who God is. And all of us are in the same boat, the same process, loved by the same God. Forgiven completely, regardless of the label. All of us in need as well of the kindness and encouragement of one another to help us stay focused on looking at the light. Now we're going to take some questions. Hopefully you've been putting them in. Uh, I'm going to invite up this time my wife Wendy and Dr. Mary Lutz is going to join me this time as well. And we would love to address a few questions. Thank you.
0: Okay, just uh, so everybody knows, um, we I mean, as you can probably imagine, there's a ton of questions today. Um, so we're probably not going to get to all these, but I would encourage you to listen uh, to our podcast this week. It'll have the Q&A from both uh, services, so if you had a similar question that was asked in the last service, it would probably be omitted, so you'll definitely want to uh, check it out there. But um, let's go ahead and uh, start with that first question. I've noticed that, uh, I was supposed to say many, uh, gays were sexually abused as kids. Why don't they just get help instead of acting out as gays? Mm.
1: You could say that about almost any issue that any of us face. Why do we act out instead of getting help? I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I could say that about why I work too hard, um, so why why are you driven to work because you're, because your dad or your mom beat you if you didn't work hard enough or didn't beat you? They just told stories all the time about how you're only good enough if you work hard enough you know and why do you struggle with that for a whole lifetime? It's the same question and uh, and you know that also comes to a stereotype. Yes, uh, I've heard many personal stories of people who were gay who were abused, and that was. Uh, behind part of their reason and their choice. But I've also talked to many who weren't ever amused, had
0: great relationships too. So. Mm. Uh, next question. Yeah. Are you suggesting we sacrifice our beliefs in the name of tolerance? How do we deal uh, with the tension this brings?
2: That's a great question. Um, and um, I, I think that's, when we look at how Jesus responded to so many of the people that gave him questions, so often, Jesus did not respond with a yes or a no. He he let them wrestle with that. And I think sometimes when we think about tolerance, like we have to make sure that people know where we stand. Like, that's sin, and you need to know that. It's like, how are we supposed to be help them in a trajectory mm-hmm. of getting closer to Jesus? Um, I teach in a college setting where I teach psychology, and I have to be tested every year. I get um, case scenarios, and I am to make sure that I'm being sensitive to the LGBT community and I have to be very thoughtful of that so tolerance is very encouraged in my workplace but in that process like in my psychology classes we'll take issues like they have to take a project every every term where they identify an area that they want to grow in personally and how uh, they set a plan in that and one of the students um, took the topic of homosexuality in the church and she wanted to grow in this area and so I thought, oh boy, I'm not sure if I'm going to do the tolerance thing really well. How is she going to land in this? And how is it going to be explored? But in that process of her talking, one of the students um, was, raised her hand and she said, I want to sing and I want to sing to God, but I don't know of any church that I can go to. And boy, that just really touched my heart because how do I listen to people where we can be tolerant and love and care for each other, but how can I listen and help her get closer to jesus would she be welcome in our church because for her she um, her history was more of an abusive every male had abandoned her or used her so of course the only nurturing place that she could land would be in female relationships and it's very easy to sexualize um intimacy in that way and so how uh, do i um as a teacher as a person and as a church do we allow some help somebody get closer to jesus and that trajectory when they're wanting to know him because she won't go to church without bringing her partner
3: yeah if i could speak to that briefly too um there are emotional processes that impact formulas and the way we formulate and it's important to remember that our job is not to fix other people or to fix a broken chronic culture that we live in our job is to lift Jesus up and allow him to draw people to himself and not get sucked into operating in dysfunctional ways
1: so here's the tension we all face theologically they've answered it very personally but let me talk about theology and can you do the centered set lighting again so let's just imagine let's just imagine that I'm this person back here and I am struggling with same-sex attraction. And I've decided to orient myself to the light and move to God. The tension we have is we always want to go back to the box because we don't like the centered-set tension because the centered-set tension says, well, when am I tolerating sin and when do I need to confront it and when does sin being a barrier, right? And so the question is, how long... Do I walk along this line towards Jesus before my awareness of this as a sin becomes something where I'm choosing to reject Jesus, not just debate about whether Scripture is fully reliable or all, this, all these kinds of other things. And we like to segment out some of these other sins, but let me ask you this question. The Bible talks about this same continuum, almost in exact same terms when it comes to money. It says you cannot serve God and money at the same time. Either or, in or out. The same as you cannot inherit the kingdom of God, as we read about homosexuality, right? Then why is it, we have to ask ourselves the same question then. So, when is it where my refusal to obey God in Uh, allowing myself to keep the 90% of the 100% he gives me and give 10% to him, when is that a rejection of him? And when does that result in me not being saved anymore? In a box worldview, we can say, well, you reject God when you don't accept that scripture. In the Old Testament, you continue to act out, and therefore you can't follow God. In a centered-set worldview, only God can judge that heart of when that time is that their resistance is actual rejection of God and not just struggle. Does that make sense? If we're not willing, and if we're not willing to face this on all of our own issues and recognize our own blindness as well, money just one example, then we start segmenting out this sin and make it something special, make it something weird, right? Another question.
0: Uh, There were two that came in that were pretty much the same, separated by that line. Is homosexuality a worse sin than others? Are we hypocritical to focus on it more than others? Is it different because in many cases it is an ongoing or lifestyle sin? And then the second one was, so is homosexuality really worse than any other sin? And if so, why? Why has the church made it such a huge breaking point?
1: I think this comes back to some centered-set theology. I'll let you guys answer, too, if you want. Sorry for jumping in real fast. I think this comes back to our theology, too, of in and out and centered-set. When we look at that term defining worst sin, we define it as something that merits greater rejection. That's not how the Bible thinks about sin. Sin is sin. And sin creates separation between us and God. And sin brings death to our lives. Now, is homosexuality more difficult in some ways than others I mean the way Paul's describing in Romans 1 there is this process of increasing resistance to God that results in certain sins happening and so maybe it's a reflection of greater brokenness but is it worse in terms of needing for condemnation absolutely not it's no different than any other sin But the other aspect, and this is the reason why that line in the sand is hard, when you read about the gay community, the fact that that identity line in the sand issue comes up so much is because that is the focal point. It is so visible compared to other sins versus all the invisible sins that we don't talk about. This one is so visible that it is the focal point of our rejection and therefore becomes the focal point of our acceptance, therefore the line in the sand that my brother always draws on me, saying you can't love me unless you accept this. It's just because it's so visible.
3: My name is Mary, and I am a workaholic. Is my sin any better? Absolutely not. Is it a lifelong struggle? You bet it is. There there are elements to the mind-body connection that we have not figured out yet. But I need to continue to be vigilant in that area and to ask other people to hold me accountable and to continue to cooperate with God in renewing my mind.
0: Do you want to say anything?
3: Uh,
0: I think we have time for a couple more. Uh, What about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah?
3: You know, it's it's interesting that that passage would come up. I don't know about you. Maybe I'm a broken record, but I always come back to Jesus' words to his disciples. What is that to you? You follow me. And if you read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah back in, I think it's Genesis 18, there's this ongoing conversation between God and Abraham. And part of why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed was because the saints were nowhere to be found. There was nobody to stand in the gap and pray. That's our responsibility. Mm
0: -hmm. I can't add to (laughs) that. Very good. We'll jump uh, to New Testament here. What is the due penalty mentioned in Romans 127? So I brought up that passage. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error.
1: It doesn't say what the due penalty is, so we'd be guessing to a large extent on that. The only thing that comes remotely close to that is Paul does talk about uh, that uh, sexual sin, not just homosexuality, but sexual sin is um, a more challenging, more impacting sin in our life because of uh, the, in, the, the total involvement of the being, the total involvement of body, emotion, spirit, mind, everything. It is such a... Sex is the, one of the most powerful experiences, one of the most powerful drives in all of human history. And so when we, when we sin in that area, it has greater emotional impact in rewiring us and, and causes greater difficulty, whether hetero or homosexual, to deal with the sin in that area. So maybe it's, maybe it's referring to that, but it really doesn't say, so uh, we're speculating too much beyond that.
0: One more, or no? Uh, yeah, uh, we have time for one more. I'm actually trying to put it <laughs> into the same question, because I had two that I think complemented each other pretty well. I apologize for the small font already. Uh, How do we gracefully handle the issue that gay individuals may see homosexuality as a core part of who they are and thus think that God rejects them as people instead of their behavior? And then I like this second piece because it seemed to give us a more specific example. So out of curiosity, how would you approach this topic with a family member who's been happily married to his partner for over 18 years?
1: Do you want to approach that topic in some of your friendships in Eugene?
2: Well, I think, I mean, it depends if they're saying that they're Christian and that they're gay or whether they are, um, or if they would just say that they're in a positively, happily married lesbian or uh, gay marriage. Um, I would say that for, I've been listening to a a lady for a while. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield, and she actually got her Ph.D. at The Ohio State University, which I guess um, (laughs) in, in English, and she became a tenured professor at Syracuse. And she was, well, she has a fascinating story, if you just look up her name and listen to some of her interviews. But she was, she felt like she was heterosexual for about until she was in her late 20s. Then she really embraced the gay community and she felt most authentic, most genuine in her gay relationships. They were very loving, powerful, gave into the community, wonderfully um, positive things. And it took um, there was a pastor that reached out to her and started to have conversations. She has since become um, let go of that lifestyle she's actually married to a uh, Presbyterian minister she's been in recovery you know hmm. i don't know to use that word but she's been in a process of healing for 16 years it's very interesting to listen to but so for her I would um, for people that have been happily married and how do you talk to a family member um, I don't know, my gay friends, they're wonderful people to be with. They're entertaining, joyful, loving. But where is God wanting to connect with them? And how does he want you to have your questions and your thoughts? Um, What is he up to? And I think when you ask the Holy Spirit, he is so excited to share. And he has a path that he has for each person. And for Rosaria, um, it was direct conversations. But she would say that the way that the church helped her most was when they, because um, what we, what the church was asking, what Christ was asking her to do, was to let go of the thing that gave her the most comfort. That was her relationship. And so when she was like, I'm thinking that the Bible is telling me I have to surrender this. This is very, very painful. And when um, she could talk to other Christians who would, and she'd ask the question, well, what did you have to give up in order to be a Christian, to be a part of the church? And when they would connect with the places that you've already identified, like I had to give up, you know, what would that be? Where were your struggle points? And if you were honest with that, that gave her the courage to go through an incredibly messy, painful experience of letting go uh, a beautiful community for her. I don't know if that addresses it well enough. but
3: yeah, I think the only thing I would add is that I would approach the conversation the same way that I try to approach conversations with anybody, which is point out where you see God at work.
1: And part of that, uh, as I think Wendy intimated, in in anybody's story, and we started this message. If we don't acknowledge the level of pain and level of sacrifice of somebody who's in that lifestyle is going to have to go to in order to choose to change and be free, it has to start there. I mean, can you imagine? This, This lady that she mentioned describes, I had to give up my partner. I had to give up my house. Uh, She was a tenured professor. She had to give that up. She was head of the department leading gay studies, had to give that up, had to give up everything about her identity. And we sometimes ask people to change and make light of the level of sacrifice that's going to require. And so then we become demanding rather than walking alongside and saying, I'll be with you. No matter how far we get through this process. Okay? So I want to invite now some, uh, questions. Hopefully you've been inputting questions throughout this whole time. And to help me today, my wife Wendy's gonna join me, and, uh, this service Jeremy's gonna join me as well. Right? So, yes, over there.
0: There we go. Would you believe me if I said we didn't have any questions? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, Plenty of questions. Uh, I might believe you
1: if you said you had less than a hundred.
0: Uh, less than hundred. Oh well, come on now. All right, let's uh, start with the first one. If the Bible has a strong emphasis on love, how can loving, committed, uh, committed gay relationships be wrong?
1: Yeah. Uh, that's a very emotionally tugging question, isn't it? And, and the reality is, I know many adulterous affairs that have been done in a very loving way. Just because something is done in a loving, kind way doesn't mean it's right. I could even probably point to adulterous affairs that have been done where uh, uh, they were having an affair with one another because their relationships and their own marriage were abusive and unhealthy. But does that still make that right? Just because it feels loving, just because it is loving, it doesn't make it right. And that's one of the difficult struggles we have in life. Separating tugs of compassion... uh, from the reality of
0: life. I think I would add, too, um, we see throughout the Scriptures that uh, Ross presented, and there's a couple more, uh, that that God keeps calling us back to a transformed lifestyle and uh, something that is unique, identified solely in God, or in Christ, depending on New Testament, Old Testament. And because of that, there is a, a distinction um, that a, a follower of God should have about their life. And uh, for the homosexual, that clearly means even in their relationships and how they um, uh, interact with other people. Uh, so I, I think that there is a uh, a distinctive for followers of Christ to live out uh, in principle. And, and so that then precludes Uh, how they relate to others is that fair Mm -hmm. okay yeah another question unless you want to comment on that i know we talked about the possibility of genetic flaw due to sin but could homosexuality be produced by an evil spirit
1: yes another question (laughs) i mean the bible teaches a spiritual reality right and so, uh, and the Bible teaches most most uh, most pointedly that we open ourselves to evil spiritual influence by our choices of sin. Right? So, yeah, any any kind of sin, sin with money, slander, any kind of sin, can open ourselves to a, a, a demonic spiritual influence, impacting us in some measure.
0: Uh, what's the church's or the overall church view of homosexuals adopting children?
1: This is where it, do you want to? No,
0: Wendy. Um, <laughs> go ahead and answer one.
1: This is where it gets difficult. The Bible doesn't really address it to a large extent. Um, so. You can only address it through extrapolating concepts to go this direction. And, um, and um, you know, um, we don't have as many uh, gay friendships here. We had a lot of them when we lived in Eugene. And we saw some parents who were wonderful, raising wonderful kids. Um, so then you start having all these weird arguments. Is it worse for, if, if, if homosexuality is a sin is it worse for a child to be raised by a homosexual? Or if uh, alcoholism is sin, is it worse to have them raised by an alcoholic? And you start having to... So that's an area where I think you're going to have to vote your conscience because it, when it comes to voting, because when you start dicing it out, which sins are you going to choose should uh, mean somebody can't raise a child, right? <laughs> That that just seems to start getting really subjective and messy to me. And uh, and some of you are probably unsatisfied that I'm not more definitive on that answer. But honestly, you know, we had friends who were gays raising kids who were raising really fabulous kids. Yeah, did they have a weird idea? Did they have a, what would be a Christian, unchristian idea about this issue? Certainly. But in a lot of areas that are better than a lot of kids. <laughs> so. Yeah.
0: All right. I think we have time for uh, one more question. And just to let you know um, that if you submitted a question that wasn't answered, uh, there's a good chance that it might be repeated uh, in the second service. So you could catch all these questions uh, via our podcast. Uh, but feel free to keep uh, texting those in. And I, I will be
1: available after service and um, maybe Wendy or Jeremy possibly can be available as well. We can interact on more questions if you'd like.
0: Are you suggesting we sacrifice our beliefs in the name of tolerance? How do we deal with the tension this brings?
2: Can I take this one? Yes. Okay. Um, this, I was really conflicted on whether we should take this topic as a church because I work in um, college. I teach psychology and so um, I live. I work in a community where LGBT, LGBT is very supportive. and um, the ones like an example would be one of the assignments that I give is they have to pick a topic in psychology that affects them that they want to develop a life plan on, um, and how they want to grow in that area. And one time uh, they picked the topic of homosexuality in the church, and I'm like, I know that could have been a little bit dicey, and I was a little bit challenged. Like, how is this going to flow? Um, and in that discussion of this woman presenting how she wanted to grow in her understanding of homosexuality and how that connects with the church, at the end of her sharing, one of my students, who, if you knew her, she had a history where men were completely um, abandoning or um, abusive. And she raised her hand and said, I, and I thought she was so bold, but she raised her hand and said, I want to sing for God, but I have no place where I know I could do that. And I, my heart was so touched by that because, like, how can I support her? Because she's on the trajectory where she wants to be going for the light. And I was thinking, as I was sitting next to her, could I invite her to our church? Can how I would it be okay for her? Because she is going to bring her lesbian friend, um, partner, who is it's a, a very understandable, a loving relationship. So how can I be on that path to support her and others like her and coming to know Jesus better? And so I was nervous about this um, conversation that we would have today because it's just so easy for them when they are looking at what kind of community I could be a part of. The LGBT community has been one of the more accepting communities I've ever been a part of and for them as well. And that we would ask them to leave that and come to a place where they may not feel like they're accepted or that... Their behavior is thought of as sin. How can we help them as they want to know Jesus better? And so does that feel like it's tolerant that I'm accepting their behavior? Boy, I think you, you know, identified places in that. But we have to love them where they're at. And um, where are they in that process of getting to know Jesus? I want to bless any way I can.
1: And this is, theologically, this doesn't become easy. And this is the reason why this this whole issue of tension is the reason why the church consistently jumps back in the box, because we don't like living with tension. But if we're going to live with the theology the Bible teaches about grace, about God's forgiveness, about the fact that, yes, there are lines of right and wrong, there are lines of acceptance and following and rejection, But we can't always define them as neatly as a box, unless we're willing to 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 deal with that. Then what are we going to do? You know, uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump back into moralizing, and we're gonna jump back into harsh treatment. And and the reality is, so when the the big question comes down to, so when in the journey of the process, so let's give me standard set lighting for a second. In the journey of the process, if I start way back here, away from the light and i'm not willing to accept i'm not willing to accept the idea that that the bible teaches homosexuality is a sin and i'm beginning to walk toward but i'm but, but i'm i'm willing to surrender my identity and i'm willing to say god you can define me and i'm going to point myself to the light and i'm going to walk towards the light at what point does accountability come into the place where my unwillingness to accept the biblical definition of sin becomes a rejection of the light when is that? How do we know when that is? And if we're going say to that, say that it becomes something and we judge a lie for homosexuals, then why don't we judge it about money? Because the Bible speaks just as strongly about money. It says you cannot serve God and money. It's an either-or issue. It's a, the same as abomination, the same as cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Issue. And yet, the vast majority of us don't follow what the Bible teaches in regard to giving. That He gives us 100% of what we give and He asks us to keep 90% and give 10% to Him. So, at what line for each one of us does money and our lack of willingness to respond to God's heart in that cross us over that same line that a homosexual has to cross over at some point? And the fact of the matter is, we don't know. You and I, most of the time, cannot tell where that line is. Only God knows the heart. And our job, in general, outside of some very specific circumstances of church discipline, is to be kind and to be people who point to the light and to be people who encourage to look at the light and be people who walk alongside in kindness and graciousness with our arm around people carrying them in their weakness and loving them in their weakness. And that really is our responsibility. But we would want to jump back in the box because we want to be in God's role and we don't like the tension that that creates for us. Makes sense? So... Today, as we continue our message, and going to go into communion here in a moment, I just want to say this to those of you who may be here who are gay or those of you who have gay friends who have been rejected by the church. I want to say, please forgive me. Please forgive us for treating you with a merciless box of religion rather than giving you the good news of Jesus. I want to say, forgive me, forgive the church for treating you different than we treat ourselves in our own areas of darkness and blindness where we struggle with sin and we isolate you as being different than that. I want to say to you, when your feelings didn't change like you wanted them to, please forgive us for creating expectations that forced you to feel rejected rather than accepted and invited by God. For doubting and judging your relationship with God. Please forgive us. For believing that we are morally superior and not being, not even being aware of our own darkness. Please forgive us. Because by doing that, we made you stand at a distance. And we made you stand all alone. For those of us here who are not... Uh, gay in our orientation or struggle with same-sex attraction, uh, I want to invite you to this communion as an act of repentance because I think all of us have struggled with the weirdness of feelings and the, and the judgmental statements and the the things we think are funny that are, are biting and harsh and hard. Uh, I just want us to repent of that or any other sin we have. And if you're here and you are a person who you identify yourself as gay, if you're willing to want and want to follow Jesus, if you're willing, even if you're unconvinced about the rightness or wrongness of it, as we talked about today, if you're willing to surrender your whole identity and trust Him to define that for you over time, then I want to invite you to take communion with us today. And I want to encourage you to do that. Can we just close our eyes for a moment? And I just want each of us to ask God, where, where are you speaking to me today? What do I need to surrender to you and repent of today? Lord, I pray that You'd send Your Holy Spirit to us right now. That You'd come as we uh, take communion and remember Your broken body for us. Your spilled blood for us. You loving us in the depths of every sin imaginable so deeply that You died for relationship with us. Lord, I pray that You'd take uh, those broken places in us today. That you'd help us entrust them to you. That you'd help us to stop turning away from you and to turn toward you and to trust you to hold those broken places because you have been ultimately broken. You know what it's like. Come, Lord, and hold those broken pieces of our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come for communion as the band leads us in worship.
0: Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.